Hi everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of the Genre Equality Podcast on the Genre Equality channel. My name is Hitzer. I'm Isa. Uh, and we welcome uh, our new listeners from Singapore Community Radio. Uh, hopefully, you enjoyed uh, what we've presented to you. You know, in the past few weeks, there have been a couple of episodes of Behold, mm-hmm. uh, the previous episodes of Genre Equality. Um, if you like what you're hearing, please give us a like and a follow on our Facebook page, uh, as well as on our Mixcloud page. You can find all our back archives, all of our previous episodes uh, on our Mixcloud. That's our... That's our um, repository for mm-hmm. all things genre equality but of course if you prefer to listen uh, on twitch or if you prefer to listen on facebook live uh you can follow the singapore community radio facebook page as well that's yep. where the facebook live uh, streams are held and of course you know go to their twitch page uh the, the singapore community radio backslash uh, videos then you can find our archives there as well um at least for the last two episodes are the episodes that have been airing on sgcr uh, hopefully you've been enjoying everything so far. Um, as we mentioned, my name is Hit Zero, and that's Isa. Uh, and we'll, genre equality is a podcast where we look back on the past thirty days, the past month. Uh, we talk about all the various sci-fi, fantasy, horror, animation that's come forward, mm-hmm. uh, things that falls into the broad realm of genre. Um, our previous behold episode, we talked about some horror movies, um, some meta horror. So do check that out as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, on this episode, though, we will be talking about more straightforward horror because, as you know, this is, <laughs> once again, spooky season. It's, it's the Halloween season. So there is a lot of horror out there on Amazon, HBO Max, on Netflix, uh, on Hulu, um, in theaters, and etc., etc. There's, there's horror everywhere, and we'll be diving all into that. But let's not forget, there is still indie, sci-fi, there's mm-hmm. fantasy, uh, there's, there's a lot of cool children's animations actually uh, this month. Um, Netflix's new uh, movie, Over the, Over the Moon, has come out. Yeah. Uh, two of our favorite series are back, Kipo and the Age of Wannabes and Come in San Diego. Uh, we'll be talking about that as well. With, the, with regards to Kipo, it's, it's the final season, so we'll definitely delve into that. Yep. You know. But our main topics this month... Um, are big ones, like, really, really big ones, and and I'm sort of glad that there aren't really any big movies coming out this month, as they have, you know, there haven't been any big movies in cinemas because <laughs> we kind of get the focus on like you know Lovecraft Country, which is what we're going to be talking about. Our first topic, mm-hmm. uh, and then you know we'll be talking about the haunting of Bly Manor, the follow-up to uh, Mike Flanagan's The Haunting of Hill House. I uh, will be talking about Gandhi Tartowski's Primal. Uh, those are our three big topics of the month, like, and uh, and. The reason we put them up top is it's not just because you know they have the most visibility, but I think because they are the three best um, shows of of the month. Would you agree? I mean, yeah, definitely, broadly. definitely. I mean, like these three shows has pretty much like consumed my my thoughts for the for the month, all my waking moments. Uh, I think in particular, uh, Lovecraft Country and Primal have been fairly um, thought provoking. Yeah, definitely, man. Uh, very different shows, of course, but let, let's get into it like, with our first topic, uh, Lovecraft Country. It is based on Matt Ruff's novel, Lovecraft Country, uh-huh. uh, and it kind of presents a vision of 1950s America where the horrors of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's cosmic monsters and secret cabals intertwine with the daily horrors of anti-black racism du- during the Jim Crow era. 
Um, it's centered on a pulp fiction obsessed Korean war veteran named Atticus, uh, yeah. his best friend slash future lover Leticia, uh, and his uncle George. Uh, we follow the African American trio on a road trip, at least at first, uh, <laughs> on a road trip uh, into the deep south in search of Atticus's missing father, uh, played by uh, Michael Kenneth Williams. You know, you know him from The Wire, from Boardwalk Empire, from. Whoa, he's been in, I think, every HBO show in history. Um, <laughs> little do they know that their journey will involve demons, uh, shapeshifters, uh, white supremacists, of course, uh, and, and wow, whoa, time travel, <laughs> white supremacists who can cast magic. Um, yeah, so, so as I mentioned, Atticus, or as we shall call him Tick, uh, his friends call him Tick, uh, is the Korean, uh, uh, Korean war veteran at the center of this. Uh, and it is, uh, in every sense of the word, right, HBO's... Uh, Lovecraft fantasy is quite fantastical uh, yeah. and, and much like Thick has a weakness for pulp stories. This is kind of a, a bit of a tribute to, to pulp storytelling as well. Um, as Thick puts it, um, I love that the heroes get to go on adventures in other worlds, uh, defy insurmountable odds and defeat the monster, save the day. That is kind of what the show is. Uh, but he's also painfully aware that these tales rarely have room for someone who looked like him. Yeah. Uh, his favorite author, H.P. Lovecraft, uh, was uh, also a, a, a vile bigot um, who once wrote a poem comparing black men to beasts mm -hmm. uh, filled with vice. Um, in this show, uh, Tick gets a chance to live out the plot just like the ones in his beloved sci-fi and fantasy novels. In the process, he battles you know, both monsters from myth and flesh and blood ones, uh, you know, more straightforward ones. Um, and, and on more than one terrifying occasion, uh, members of the second group, the, the white supremacists, who have transformed into, into the first, um, yeah. using supernatural terrors as metaphors for the more down-to-earth uh, horrors is a reliable staple of the genre. But uh, this show employs the device with particular deafness, I feel, um, um, toggling back and forth between, you know, racist cops and showgoths and, and burning crosses on, on lawns and, and ghosts lurking in sub-basements. Mm -hmm. um, the Freemans and Letty are alternately threatened and aided by Christina and William, who are a mysterious duo who look like the whitest, blondest people ever <laughs> put into existence, uh, much less on television. Uh, and the series soon begins to argue that uh, whiteness itself uh, can be a superpower or a magical power um, in, in a sense, you know. Um, so uh, you've seen all 10 episodes of uh, Lovecraft Country now. Yep. Uh, what, what, what do you think about it broadly? Um, let, let's talk about it broadly before we delve into any, any sort of spoilers. Yeah, uh, I mean, on the whole, I, I do feel that it starts off a little slow, right? I, I think with um, the amount of setup that needed to be done, you know, just in terms of the tone, and perhaps the context uh, of, of laying out what Jim Crow's America looked like uh, in the 50s um, for people who are unaware, as well as kind of giving you a hint as to what, you know, kind of like what pulp is and, and what Lovecraftian horror is in general. Like, it takes a while to get off, right? I don't think we actually see um, the fantastical elements uh, until maybe like way into the first episode. You know, almost near the end of the first episode. Well, it is in the first scene. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, but I mean that does uh that does set the tone. But like after that, you know, when we mm. go into the entire kind of like world building of it, right? Like we really don't get any sort of like horror or any sort of monsters or anything of the sort. Well, not of the human kind, anyway. Mm. Um, 
till much later, right? So it does start off a bit slow, but I don't think like it's a it's a fault in particular because the moment it picks up, it can get quite frantic, mm. um, especially with all the action scenes that are peppered throughout. So in terms of pacing, I really did quite enjoy how it was uh, laid out. Um, mm-hmm. The first five episodes did feel a little uneven in places. Mm. Um, it does pick up significantly though after that. Uh, mm-hmm. with, with kind of like the, the deepening intrigue and all of that. Um, some of the twists and turns and, and kind of like devices that were being used uh, kind of took me by surprise. I think the time travel in particular was a bit unexpected. Mm-hmm. Uh, for them to include um, Lovecraft Country as a novel in the continuity itself was also mm-hmm. a bit surprising for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all in all, I think it was fairly well done. I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. Yep. I think it's a very interesting exercise in using genre writing to, you know, kind of like explicate the the horrors of humanity, right? Uh, yeah. As, as you so mentioned, and in particular, you know, the horrors of, of racism mm-hmm. um, and what people were facing back then in the 1950s and even now as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for the last 400 years, uh, to be honest. Yep, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think Lovecraft Country itself is... It, it it's it's a messy show, um, and and I will delve into why I think it's messy and why I think for this show the messiness is good. Yeah. Um, but but first I I do have to say that it it feels like a collage of of influences and time periods, um, traveling backwards through America's history of racial atrocities and then mm-hmm. forward to consider the many uh hopeful moments and disappointments from the decades that follow uh Thick and Letty's journey, um. One thing I have, to, I have to focus on is uh, the, the soundtrack. You know, sometimes the soundtrack is era-specific, uh, but, you know, sometimes they play around with anachronistic <laughs> songs. You know, you yeah. get Cardi B, you get Frank Ocean, uh, or you get the Jefferson's theme uh, accompanying the action, or, or in a bold break from cinematic tradition. Um, and what I truly, really, really... I mean, there's a lot of things to love about Shola. But one of my favorite elements of the show is that a lot of the montages, uh, montages, the montage sequences, yeah. are accompanied not by songs but by monologues. Um, you have, you know, excerpts of uh, James Baldwin's famous nineteen sixty five debate about racism in in episode one. Mm-hmm. You have Sonia Sanchez's poem "Catch the Fire" in episode nine as Tulsa Tal- Tal- burns. Mm-hmm. Um, you have eleven um, year old Naomi Wilder's speech about the disproportionate number of little black girls who are victims of gun violence in in episode eight. Uh, you know. Happens right after Diana cathartically screams, you know, fuck you, pig. Uh, you have a Judy Garland interview at the end of episode six that uh, mirrors uh, Chia's own plight, one of the characters in the show. Yeah. Um, so you got to get kind of get used to this blender of genres and tones and styles uh, working together. And, and in my opinion, they work spectacularly well together. Um, each hour seems to be bursting uh, with ideas and incidents. You know, um, for example, after the road trip in search of Montrose, um, Atticus's father, you know, there is a crackerjack haunted house yeah. story. <laughs> um, there is an Indiana Jones's uh, Indiana Jones-esque hunt for a treasure buried underneath a museum. There is a gross body horror about a black woman turning into a white woman. There's an episode about um, a Korean fox succubus who just happens to love Judy Garland musicals. There yeah. is um, a multiverse hopping journey where a black woman can be all she wants to be. Um, as we mentioned, a time travel episode to the Tulsa Race Massacre of, of 1921, which coincidentally, uh, at exactly one year, 
after the Watchmen premiere. Um, I think that was done on purpose on, on HBO's uh, behalf. Mm -hmm. So, so much is happening and it's all so stylishly presented that each episode feels like it could last twice as long and, and not get dull. Um, I think Jonathan Majors will, will be the show's big discovery for a lot of new viewers. Yeah. Um, if, if you've not seen The Five Bloods or, or The Last Black Man in San Francisco, Jonathan Majors is a revelation here and he has screen presence to spare. Journey Smollett uh, returns uh, the, the Smalley family name into the good graces in my book, you know, after his brother. <laughs> uh, you, you, you all know what happened with him. Lah. But anyway, um, Jenny Smalley plays Letitia um, and she's pure dynamite. There is a sequence in the third episode where Letty uses a baseball bat to attack a group of cars mm -hmm. parked around her home by racist mm -hmm. bullies and she plays it equally as a dance number and an and action sequence and it's as riveting as it is cathartic, you know. Uh, but, but it's not all about monsters and, and magic and race, you know, at, at its core, the show is actually about cycles of uh, uh, abuse and, and oppression, uh, how abused children and abused people can grow up to be abusers and oppressors, you know, how um, the, the, the show questions how trauma can be passed through the generations. It explores how being denied who you are, either by society or by co a controlling parent, uh, expresses itself in, in toxic ways later on, you know, what, what mm -hmm. do you think about, you know, um, that that kind of theme that that ruminates through the the show from you know from Montrose to Tick, uh, from uh, and and even Gia is a good example of this as well. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's it's interesting because like one of the major kind of uh, plot points, right, in in the mm -hmm. very beginning is that you find out Tick ha has, um, how do we go about this without spoiling it? He he has an interesting heritage, right? Right, right. Uh, yeah. Which plays into the greater part of the story, if not the whole story itself, you know. Um, but that in and of itself isn't the like that heritage is problematic, but it isn't as problematic as kind of like the generational uh, abuse, right? That we mm. see in multiple relationships throughout the entire series, mm -hmm. um, you know, and that even extends into um, time traveling into the future where he meets his own his own son. Right, mm -hmm. like so, like even though there are a lot of very complex relationships here, right? Obviously, takes a relationship with Monroe's is one of them, and I think that's probably the most clearly played out. Like over and over again, they consistently come back to kind of the root of that, right? Like the the relationship specifically within family, mm -hmm. uh, and and how that kind of like affects and has its mm, has horror of its own. Yeah. Right. And haunts us on his own. Uh, much like we'll be talking about probably in our next <laughs> next topic as well. Um and despite all the flair and all the monsters and all the horror and all the gore and everything uh, along <coughs> those lines, right? Like Lovecast Country never uh lets you forget that at mm. the end of the day, this the central um portion and the central problems is people it's it's humans right and our mm -hmm. relationships with other people whether mm -hmm. or not they're family whether or not they are of the same skin color whether or not they're from where we're from you yeah. know uh whether they are your blood or you're, they're not your blood like that mm -hmm. is the central uh conceit of the entire story right like mm -hmm. how those uh, mistakes and failures and abuse are perpetuated or broken for that mm -hmm. matter so i think it's a very smart way of doing it like amidst as you said, the mess, right, of so many things that are going on yeah. and, and all the visual um, flourishes and, and and the musical choices and, and you know, um, all of that, like, it mm -hmm. still always reminds you, like, it always comes back to that, you know, especially in the quieter moments 
when there's a bit more contemplation, when there's a bit more like a one-to-one kind of dialogue going on, uh, yeah. it keeps centering on that. And I think that's very clever um, and very... It's interesting that they always manage to pull it back, right? Mm-hmm. Despite everything that is going on at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so much about the show is is about cycles of abuse, and and it's also a lot. Of, a lot of it's about identity. You know, yeah. um, in in one of the episodes, Letty's sister Ruby uh, transforms into a white woman. Um, how will she use uh, the superpower of white privilege? You know, um, the the white privilege that she gets is more of a superpower than the potion itself. You know, yeah. will she will she give up her identity to fit in, or will she use it to get some measure of justice? You know, it it explores. Um, what it's like to be a, a period, uh, a, a woman in that period as well, you know, and why to an extent uh, white women can never really equate their oppression to the plight of black people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is, there's a bit of a, a white feminism subtext in Christina's story. Yeah. Um, she is an interesting villain. I really, really like her because there are, part, <laughs> there are parts of her that I sympathize with. Yep. You know, she's trying and I think she truly cares about Ruby in the end too, you know, but... Uh, in the end, she is still a villain, and and I like complex villains like that, lah. You mm-hmm. know, um, and ultimately in the flat in in the family, kind of is about how the past affects the future. Uh, what are the lessons that we can learn from from our ancestors? But also, what are their mistakes, right? You know, yeah. Um, some of history is sacred, and and some of it is kindled for revolution. Um, in the end, it's up to the next generation, you know, like uh, like D, the Winter Soldier. Sorry about that joke. That's a spoiler. Um, <laughs> to uh, to decide, you know, whose blood should be spilled be, be, besides their own. Yeah. Um, the the questions explored are, are so layered, and it's a very complex show with so much foundation in the ugliest part of real American history. Yeah. Um, which is why I think uh, Lovecraft Country coming on the heels of Watchmen last year is is. It feels a bit like a spiritual successor to Damon Lindelof's Watchmen, do you think so? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely you can. I mean, you can draw the lines there, right? Mm-hmm. And I think like it being kind of released at the same time in the same uh, in the same time of the year yeah. know, has, has interesting kind of like um, parallels uh, to, to what came before, right? Mm. Yeah, so um, I, I don't know if I don't know if Lovecraft Country hits as close to home as, mm. as the Watchmen um, mm-hmm. series. I also don't know if it's as relatable to a lot of people as well, mm-hmm. right? Like, all all things considered, I think if you had told me, oh, you know, there's like Lovecraft Country. Sure, I love I love Lovecraftian horror, Elder Gods, you know, uh, all of that. Um, but if you explain the premise to me, I don't think I would have been interested uh, mm-hmm. at, as opposed to a franchise like The Watchmen, right? Which I'm far more intimately familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think it definitely ha- it is a spiritual successor of sorts, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but it is an entirely different monster on its own. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's only a spiritual successor of sorts in that it uses uh, genre and celebration of genre tropes, uh, yeah. genre filmmaking, genre storytelling to... To de- to peel back the layers of 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 uh, anti-black racism, uh, in uh, America, um, yeah. th- 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 that's that's the extent of it, lah. Um, but I think in in the end, like Lovecraft Country is is a really tonally ambitious show, and and I've said it over and over again, like, specifically on this podcast, I I value um ambition, yeah, over safe consistency. Um, the ambition of this show can be a blessing and a curse, you know. Yeah. 
um, it is much like the, the show itself, right? Reminds me of Hippolyta in the multiverse, you know. Mm-hmm. The show likes to name itself and it be it just goes full on with whatever it names itself, you know. Yep. We are a haunted house story, it names itself. We are uh, Indiana Tre- uh, Jones treasure hunt, it names itself, you know. Um, so in that sense, right, I, I, I love the ambition of it. But because <laughs> it is so ambitious, right, sometimes it's um, execution um it's it's not like like it's it's reach like, exceeds its grasp uh, is, is what i'm trying to say sometimes yeah. Yeah, like it I doesn't agree. always it doesn't always nail what it's going for but damn do i love that it goes for it la. yeah yeah it's def- it definitely has aspirations although it may not always have the wings to reach that right mm. um i i do feel like there are mm, like in in considering it um, next to Watchmen, right? Like, yeah. because it's set in the fifties, um, and because it it ne- uh, necessitates referring to uh, certain historical events, right? So, like, mm-hmm. obviously the lynching of Emmett Till, um, yeah, and the Total yeah. Race Massacre. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it brings anything substantially new, perspective-wise, to the table, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that was just kind of something I was thinking about in in the back of my mind. Uh, for sure, the greater kind of Lovecraftian horror at play, mm-hmm. um, with all its monsters, uh, dwarfs a lot of the time like the human horror that's going on, you know. And I'm not really sure what kind of message that sends. Essentially, like we always come back to the human horror, like we said earlier. Sure. You know, but every time you're you're dealing with a shogoth or you're dealing with anything of that of that ilk, you don't uh, like all of that fades into the background. Whereas I think with Watchmen, um, the the problems at hand, like the human horrors at hand, are always consistently in the foreground. You know, mm. and it's skewed in a way because it's more modern and because it's more relevant to to our present situation in the world today. Uh, that feels a bit more of a sp- perspective mm. than what Lovecraft Country presents. Mm. I, I I kind of felt the opposite way. Like I felt tr- really horrified by more of the human horrors, and whenever uh, fantastical elements came in, it came as a relief for me, like, You know, um, and I think the show, uh, to to an extent, also brings in uh fantastical elements as as a catharsis and re- relief from the real life horrors it's presenting mm. you know um Shoggoths appear in the first episode at a, at a crucial moment uh to to eat um racist cops you know it's it, they are a savior not necessarily the monsters that the black people fear yeah. um you know uh, there, there's a lot of great filmmaking in 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 Lovecraft Country that is like you know what I like to call the, the slowest car chase ever in, 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 in episode one, which which works so well because it it is simultaneously the slowest and the best car chase I've ever seen. Yeah. They have to they have to keep to the speed li- speed limit to to exit a sundown town. They're they're racing against you know the sun literally going down on the horizon. Yeah. Uh, but they can't speed. You know, it's it's one of the tensest and most creative car chase sequences I, I've I've ever seen. You know. Um. But but on on the flip side of it also the the I, I do have to say that the the focus on black suffering. Is important, uh, yeah. is valuable, but uh, to an extent, it also does uh, fail when it comes to representing people of other colors uh, in in America, uh, yeah. partic- particularly the wasted opportunity that was uh, the indigenous girl Yahima, mm-hmm. uh, who was introduced in episode four. Um, spoiler alert, you know, from here on in, um, 
I do understand. I uh, already said spoilers, ah, so yeah. okay. <laughs> I I do understand why uh the the decision to have Montrose um murder Yahima. Yeah. I think Misha Green was saying that it's important to show that oppressed people can become oppressors themselves. Yeah. Uh, and and in fact, it is the trauma that makes them oppressors. Um, and, and you know the desire to survive and to protect. Uh, you know, uh, furthers the divide. You know, the us against them, lah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that 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 is like a smart idea. But I do feel like you, they could have done a lot more of Yahima in between. Yeah. You know. You yeah. Know, uh, like I mean, like they they did a really good job with Gia. Uh, I I do feel you know in in, in the episode. Uh, yeah, I do feel know, in the Korean War. Yeah. It's a bit like uh, what's it called? Me Me and Daegu was a great episode, right? Um, yeah, yeah, my my favorite actually. Yeah, it was so well done that I was a bit upset that there wasn't more of it. Mm-hmm. You know, like for for the majority of what Jia is doing, just uh, and and her story and so on and so forth, to be contained largely in episode six was a bit of a waste for me because oh man, like I I really really thought that it was a great episode. I thought Jamie Chung did a great job. Mm. Um, with her role as well, um, the portrayal of of uh, the Nine Tail Fox, and all of that, like I think it's just something that I I feel that I can relate a bit more to, right? That particular mm. mythology, yeah. Um, being close to the Asian culture, yeah. Uh, but yeah, like I do think I do agree with you. I I wish they could have done more, you know, in 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 terms of that. It's an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. Doesn't really. They don't really see it through, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, at the same time, I think like with so many things kind of going on in every given episode, and how dense they they are, uh, I'll let it slide. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, I I think in the end, you know, Lovecraft Country is it's a story about you know as long as there have been men, there have been monsters, like, and not necessarily literal monsters, but you know, the, the horrors of humanity, as the show likes to point out, um, and. It, it, it there's something about the boldness of Lovecraft's swing, but uh, swings like the big swings, you know, huge, gigantic swings. Yep. That that makes me forgive whenever they do miss, you know, because <laughs> yeah. you know half of them are home runs. But you you you, I love the swings like, like I, I would rather a show take big swings like this than yep. not, you know. Yeah. So yeah, the show is messy, messy, a bit tonally inconsistent. Uh, it you know the stories don't quite. Fit as as a cohesive whole, I I do feel that is the one drawback of the show. Mm-hmm. But you know, as long as you're having fun, as long <laughs> as they as long as the themes that they're exploring are actually very smart and densely layered, you know, like I I can forgive the messiness, uh, which is why I'm I'm gonna rate Lovecraft Country an eight out of ten. Oh wow, okay, I'm I'm gonna give it a seven out of ten. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just because I think it was in conjunction with the rest of the stuff that I was watching this month that, you know, it kind of like fell. It wasn't as clean. Uh, it wasn't as compelling, I think, as, as the other topics that we're going to be talking about. Mm, yes, yeah. yeah uh, but, but yes, certainly one of the one of the highlights of the month is Lovecraft Country. So an 8 from me, a uh, 7 from Isa. Uh, next on, we're going to be moving on to... Um, a really, really good show as well. Yep. Uh, this is the second season of Mike Flanagan's Haunting Anthology. It's called The Haunting of Bly Manor. Um, I do feel, you know, first off, you know, like I do feel like Mike Flanagan, one of the finest horror, horror filmmakers working today, you know, yep. um, not as lauded as Ari Aster or Jordan Peele or Robert Eggers, but, you know, if you watch stuff like uh, Gerald's Game or Doctor Sleep, I think the auteur has proven his, his chops. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, perhaps none of his works have been as popular uh, or as transcendent as the haunting of Hill House, you know, the the 2018 c- series was 
an artistic marvel, you know, um, imbuing genuine scares and breathtaking cinematic technicality with yep. with heartbreaking, soul crushing, uh, with a heartbreaking, soul crushing tale of a family coping with grief, uh, mental illness, addiction, and trauma. You know, and 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 two years later, he's he's third uh bet show into a seasonal anthology with Bly Manor. Uh, while Hill House was loosely based on the Shirley Jackson novel. This uh this story is an amalgamation mm-hmm. of Henry James's literary works, uh, with particular emphasis on the 1898 novella The Turn of the Screw, which has been adapted um at least 24 times. I'm I'm reading through the Wikipedia how many times the Turn of the Screw <laughs> has been adapted a lot. La. Yeah. Uh, th- this is easily the, the one of the best of its uh of the adaptations. Uh, but it doesn't just adapt the turn of the screw. It it tries to infuse the turn of the turn of the screw alongside other Henry James stories like uh, like the romance of certain old clothes, which is, mm-hmm. which is a short story from him. Uh, the Jolly Connor, which is a different short story. So it, they take a lot of different Henry James's short stories, which all take place in different universes, and yeah. try to cohere them into one single narrative. And he uses uh, he does this using familiar actors from Hill House. Mm-hmm. Uh, Victoria Pedretti is back. Henry Thomas. Uh, Olivia Jackson Cohen, uh, Kate Siegel, Carla Gugino, uh, back in new in new roles, and and Bly Manor unfolds uh, another beautiful tragedy with a meticulous attention to detail and characters uh, who are more haunted than the house itself. Uh, <laughs> but um, I think while Flanagan's uh, impeccable character work is the true line, um, the second season is an entirely different beast. Yes. Um, Hill House was a, was a show about family. Uh, Bly Contrast is uh, is a show about strangers and found family. Um, in, in essence, uh, Bly Manor is a gothic romance at its, at its core. Mm-hmm. It is a gothic romance about doomed love stories. Every yep. single one of these uh, love stories are doomed, uh, whether they be toxic or whether they are ill-fated, you know, uh, different variations of that. Uh, the story essentially follows an American woman na- named Danny Clayton, uh, Danny Clayton, I must say, sounds like um, an, an FBI agent from <laughs> a procedural, um, who, who takes a job as an au pair to two often uh, English children in a secluded summer house mm-hmm. after the tragic deaths of their parents and previous nanny, played by uh, Tahira Sharif. Um, as with every other haunted house tale in existence, uh, there is a lot more going on beneath the surface than Danny initially realizes, and the secrets of the manor slowly begin to reveal themselves to, in, to its inhabitants, you know. Yeah. Uh, and like all of Flanagan's uh, previous stories, the literal uh, ghosts here serve as uh, metaphorical expressions of the emotional wounds that they all carry around, mm-hmm. and how the past and, and the present can echo onto each other. Um, in a sense, the the, the non non-linear structure of this sh- show um, almost feels like uh, what if Christopher Nolan decided to do a haunted house story? Yeah. Um, everyone who resides in Bly Manor brings their own baggage and horror with them, setting up a few intriguing side plots and eliminating looks into tragic pasts. Uh, I do feel like while each story is worthwhile. Uh, each story is well told, and each story offers a necessary piece to the story's puzzle. Uh, the non-linear structure here is a bit like not as neat or uniformly enthralling as Hill House's. Yep. Um, the various backstories are individually captivating in a vacuum, uh, but perhaps a little improperly paced uh, in terms of structure, mm-hmm. um, especially in the middle of its season. 
but yeah, I mean, what, what, what do you think about about Blind Man? I I have issues with it, lah. But I do like it overall. What 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 about you? Uh, I did enjoy it. Like you said, yeah. it's an entirely different beast. Um, from from Hill House. Uh, yeah. People who walk into Blind Manor thinking that, oh, you know, uh, I'm going to get same, the same stuff, right? The same good stuff as that. I'm going to be very surprised, I think. Mm. Uh, just in terms of the quality of the horror, it, um, and not whether it's good or bad, like it's it's good stuff, um, but just in the, the feel of it and the tone of it, it's very, very different, right? Mm. I think overall Hill House was definitely more terrifying. Yeah. Um, and there was more spectacle in Hill House, whereas Blind Man is a bit of a slow burner mm-hmm. uh, overall. Um, no, sub- subdued, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I think the main thing that you can probably harp upon is the pacing. Yeah. Uh, largely, uh, it's and in there are a lot of interesting kind of twists and turns, a lot of like sojourns into individual characters' backstories and all of that. And while I enjoy all of that, and I enjoy the character work that comes with it. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't just it doesn't tie together nicely or neatly or with enough time and care. Yeah, um, because they're adapting several different stories and making it into one story. I yeah. think that's the reason why some of the stories don't fit. Mm, I agree. I agree. And it's like in the in the meta story, right? That is going out like the the through line through the entire season. Yeah, is not great. The individual mm-hmm. stories are great. The through line is not. And whenever we see the characters together. Right. Uh, it's awkward. It doesn't fit together, mm-hmm. uh, and it feels like you uh you get all these puzzle pieces right, and and yep. they're also carefully colored and curated and carefully chosen, and then you basically try and fit everything <laughs> together in like one episode. Mm. You know, and then you have an additional episode that tries to wrap everything up, and that doesn't quite work as well because it doesn't help answer any of the questions. It just extends the story past what it's I, I felt as logical kind of conclusion should be. Mm. Uh, and like, sure, there were some plot points there, you know, to kind of tie things off, but like, I didn't feel it was necessary mm. uh, as well. So I that's that's what Blind Miner struggled with. Uh, in general, uh, but I have to say, like the performances are pretty outstanding. I think the, the two kids in particular who play Miles and Flora are amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Miles in particular, um, when he swaps, yeah. Oh my goodness, that is that is chilling to watch. Yeah, yeah. You know? uh, and it's so uh, it, their place in the story is so incredibly important. I think because it's kind of the first time where we have. In innocent victims, right? In in a haunting series. Um in, especially in this particular case, right? That's not their fault that they're in the situation that they're in. Mm-hmm. You know, they're kind of um victim of, of all the whims and fancies of every adult slash former adult yeah. uh, in their life. Um, yeah. you know, and I I mean, as much as it tries to tie everything up, it's just kind of like a semi sweet ending. Mm-hmm. Uh it's it's a bit it's a bittersweet ending, like because yeah. it's tragic too. Yeah, it it is, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, it it's understandable. I think, uh, especially when they chose to frame the entire season as a retelling of mm-hmm. the story. Um, or, or I mean, like because it's because it's a retelling, right? We do realize that it is a um, uh, a narrator that you can't necessarily depend on, right? It's a What's, mm-hmm. the, what's the usual term for that? Unreliable narrator. Yeah, unreliable narrator. And then when you find out who the narrator is, you're just like, ah, that makes even more sense because like she's not there half the time. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, she she does say in the beginning it's not her story lah. In this a uh, very very long version of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Um, I mean like I I generally I really really like the show. I think there's a lot of good things going on for it. Yeah. I think some of the episodes, uh, even though they don't quite fit together, the individual episodes are really really good. Yeah. Um, you know whether it's a period piece back to the Victorian era or whether it's it's this kind of weird um. Uh, dementia esque uh thing where someone's kind of blurring into one memory to another. This this kind of time hopping piece, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, th- those are those are all like very like genuinely gripping individually, you know. Yeah, it's just that maybe like uh, the sum of of the parts uh doesn't cohere into you know maybe like uh, the best whole. Mm. Um, and and beyond the kind of awkward narrative choices and momentum missteps, I think the real thing that bogs down Bly Manor is that. Mike Flanagan only helped one episode of uh, of the season. Uh, Mike Flanagan only directs the first episode. Uh, he was th- this was shot at the same time as Doctor Sleep. Was. Yep. So Mike Flanagan was away on set uh, at Doctor Sleep. Of course, like, it's a big budget, you know, uh, blockbuster kind of thing. So mm-hmm. he had to be there. So I think that Bly Manor sorely missed his directorial flourish. Yeah. Um, the camera work here is solid. Don't get me wrong; it's solid. It mm-hmm. just is not expertly crafted. So don't expect to. <laughs> like single take sequences, like in the in yeah. the two storms. Um, but yeah, like I, I think that being said, the the season's flaws are only kind of minor hurdles towards enjoying uh, an otherwise uh, excellent show. Yeah. Um, there it isn't as cohesive as Hill House, but there's still uh, plenty of sumptuous storytelling to to savor here. Yeah. As you were pointing out. I think Pedretti is uh, exceptional once again in the lead role, as mm-hmm. are many of the supporting performances. The kids, uh, Amelia Eve as Jamie, uh, Tania Miller as Hannah Gross are also terrific. Yep. Um, one thing I do have to point out is uh, the guy who plays Luke, um, mm. P- Peter Quint, the guy who plays Luke and Peter Quint here. Yeah. Um, his, uh, the less said about his Scottish accent, the better. Yeah. Because it is horrendous. Oh my yeah. God, that is the real horror of the se- of this season, you know. Every time he opens, like, the thing is, right, like, his, his emotion, like, his actual acting, like, you know, facials, expression, yeah. mannerisms, it's all fine. It's yeah. just that when he tries to speak with a Scottish accent, it just so takes me out of it. It's so bad. And it's, it, he becomes a caricature at that point, right? Which is a waste because his lines are like chillingly great, right? Yeah. Like the character he plays is terrifying, uh, yeah. you know, in this kind of like manipulative, like toxic masculinity, you know. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but yeah, every time he does that. And, and the problem is it's, it's even worse because the ho- everybody else in the cast has amazing accents. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and like, yeah, that that really kind of like threw me for a loop. Mm-hmm. Um, the way I okay, the way I kind of like divided everything uh, in in when I was watching the whole series is you you pair them off, right? Because the stories are all paired off, mm. right? So you got Danny and 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 Olivia, uh, no, and Jamie, mm-hmm. right? And then you have Peter and, and Rebecca and and so on and so forth. Yeah. I feel like there was. As great as Victoria Pedretti's um, individual performances o- across the episodes were, I mm-hmm. felt like her character was very inconsistent in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, her backstory, who she is in her backstory, and then who she is at the manor, right? And then who she is after the manor, like feels like completely different characters to me. And because she's kind of the main um, person that we follow, right? It's her story that we kind of follow through everything. Uh, via Jamie's eyes, uh, via Jamie's um, retelling, uh, it mm. does f- 
add to the sense that you know not everything can be pulled together very neatly. You know, mm-hmm. there are moments in time, especially I think like in in the penultimate episode where you literally have a do as ex machina, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, intervene and say, like, oh, you know, she doesn't know what possessed her, but she said that what she said, and then you know that resolves everything. I'm just like, really, mm-hmm. you know? So like, she has an overall great performance, but there were portions in time where I feel like, um, either the particular person who was running the episode, or or you know, an inconsistency in the writing of a character, like Danny's character became problematic or emblematic rather of like um the prop the problem with the series overall. Mm. Um, but yeah, it it's it's kind of chilling. Um, I mean, like my least favorite pairing definitely is is the Peter and Rebecca one, mm-hmm. just because like I understand what you're going for. I understand the kind of relationship you're trying to portray. Not enough work was done to establish that, in mm. my opinion. Right? They just kind of fell into the rules. Uh, and and Peter's character is just kind of like this wannabe debonair <laughs> character with the the brooding and the smoking and the all of that, uh, the accent certainly didn't help. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it just really was like one of the weaker characters in overall. Uh, and it's problematic because he becomes the main antagonist for the large part of the series. Yeah, yeah. I mean, b- besides the Lady of the Lake, of course. Um, yeah. I think, f- like, the thing is that I could have been uh, like a bit more generous with the show if they had given me, like, like for example, right? Like that episode where minor spoilers here, but the episode where Hannah grows uh, hops in time. Yeah. Um, that is, you know, it, I've seen episodes like that before, like, particularly, you know, the famous ones, like, you know, in Lost, uh, The Constant, uh-huh. uh, Bojack Horseman's uh, depiction of, of, of um, dementia, you know? Yeah. Uh, episodes like that, right? Like, like that episode really could have used a Flanagan visual flourish. Yeah. Yeah. Like it could have, it could have looked spectacular. My goodness, I mean, like the storytelling was was solid, la. It's just that it could have been better. Yeah. Um. And and I kind of miss Flanagan on set, la. Maybe he could have like you know tied up a bit, uh, like you know tightened things up a bit more, la. Mm-hmm. Um. And I I do think a lot of the problems that you're talking about inconsistencies in character, is because they put they put these characters into different stories. Yeah. Stories that are not connected. The Jolly Corner is not connected to the turn of the screw, which is not connected to you know the. Rom- of certain old clothes, etc., etc. These are all different stories, uh, which has been um, uh, they are like round packs and square holes, uh, sort, yeah. sort of, uh, you know. And you do kind of see that sometimes. Mm-hmm. The, that's where the threads kind of kind of free. Yeah. But I think, like on the whole, they did uh, Flanagan did a, a pretty solid job uh, in in season two, which is not a failure by any means. No, no, because no. Because no. I, I I still found it very entertaining, yeah. very chilling. It is. It is um, stories about doom and 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 doom romances and and dread filled uh, romances that are blood curdling and and mesmeric, and there are some legitimately terrifying moments as well. Mm-hmm. Like just a bit less, you know. Yeah. Uh, there's some effective jump scares, uh, but the thing is, like like Carla Gugino says at at the end of it, you know, this is a love story. It's not it's not a ghost story. Yeah. Um. And and with that in mind, so you know, in spite of its shortcomings, I think the haunting of Blind Manor proves to be a, a worthy follow up. If not, you know, it's not a better follow up, but yeah. it's worthy. That mm-hmm. is that that is gripping and emotionally compelling, in spite of uh, certain shortcomings, which can be overlooked like, overall. Yeah, yeah. Oh, most certainly, most certainly. I I do think it would have benefited from Mike Flanagan being more hands on, for yeah. sure. Uh. I was watching this with my brother and that particular episode where Hannah keeps going, keeps drifting, right? He got frustrated. Like, he got really, really frustrated. I said, I get it, I get it. You can move on now. Uh, when it happened for the fifth time, 
you know. Uh, and it's just moments like that that kind of like lacks polish uh, that I expected coming out of Hill House, mm. you know. But overall, like, don't don't get us wrong. I mean, it sounds like I'm picking at the series, but it's really just nitpicking. There's so much good stuff here. And I think the performances in particular, as well as the very, very good score, mm-hmm. um, it really does carry. Um, like, all of that you can forgive. Because at the end of the day, it's an entirely entertaining story. And yeah. extremely cathartic at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like... At the same time, you know, like I kind of nitpick about how certain episodes don't fit together. But my favorite ep- individual episodes are the ones that don't fit. You know, the the period piece, the the time hopping. You know, yep. Um, the even the Jolly Connor, which which I I really really enjoyed, which is a backstory into Henry Wingreaves, um, affair, uh, and and his own and his own trauma being being haunted by um a a, a shit eating grin version of himself. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, those are all like individually very good. You know. It's, yeah, I, I think my main issue is like I enjoy every single episode. It's just that I feel like most of them don't fit together as a series. Yeah. Like they, it almost feels like the Haunting of Blind Man could have been an anthology. Yeah, it could have. It, it easily could have, and I, I, I think I might have enjoyed it a bit more that way. Yeah, you know, without yeah. without having to spend kind of like the extra time to try and tie everything together. Mm. Yeah, it would definitely. Yeah, be. yeah. So um, I think overall this is a seven out of ten for me. It's a seven out of ten for me as well. Nice. Yeah, so um very good show, just not as good as Hill House. But I mean let's be honest, like <laughs> not many things can be as good as Hill House. Like, there was there was near perfection like, yeah, that, yeah. that show was. Yeah. yeah. Um yeah, sorry, you got final thoughts? Yeah, so is uh any news about the next um part of the anthology? Are they gonna do season three or haunting or something else? Uh they want to the team, the the haunting team want to do an a Netflix show, a Netflix ghost story, but they don't want to adapt anything this time. I see. So, uh, from indications, the season three will be an original story. That's that's gonna be interesting. I think that will be fairly interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, like whatever Mike Flanagan does, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, and another author that like I look forward to everything he does mm. is uh Gendry Tatowski, who returns to Adult Swim after the success of Samurai Jack. For for you know the second half of the first season of an animated miniseries called Primal, yep. um, we adored the first half of the first season last year uh, when we reviewed it on uh, Genre Equality Twenty Three. Uh, if you want to listen to that review, go back to that episode. Uh, and now the show is back with five brand new episodes to wrap up the first season. Uh, if you don't know what the story is, Primal is a compelling, exciting, and heartbreaking look. At the harsh cost of survival and the cruelty of nature set during prehistoric times. Mm-hmm. Um, the story follows an unnamed caveman and his dinosaur companion after a shared tragedy unites them. Uh, together, they set out to simply survive. Uh, one thing that immediately stands out about the show is that it is completely devoid of dialogue. It has zero dialogue. The characters solely express themselves to grunts, roars, and gestures, yet their emotions and personality come true extremely clearly thanks to uh, Tatowski's uh, phenomenally detailed animation. There is a beautiful way the series pairs down character interactions, yep. you know, a, a, a glance into the reflection of an eye, a subtle change in facial expression, the tiniest physical adjustment, 
when sizing up a potential predator, you know, without an inner or outer monologue to hi- to hide, you know, the sh- the, to hide these small shifts, body language is is magnified, yeah, and and and, and volumes can be said with with a grunt or a glance, um, because it is wordless, um, its gorgeous score and hand drawn animation stands out even more. Um, it's a mix of stylized creatures and fantastic action. Uh, that 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 has a great attention to detail. It's very detailed. That that makes uh the primals um action sequences feel like uh segments uh, at times from a particularly thrilling nature documentary. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, Tatovsky and and the animators make every struggle feel viscerally real. Uh, they show the strain in Spears' muscles as he climbs a tree for a better vantage point. They underline the blood and the gore dripping from Fang's mouth as uh, she manages to lunge in for a successful bite. Uh, the protagonists are almost always outmatched and, and victory comes from the way they use their terrain or knowledge gained from an earlier episode to their advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, Primal is certainly unsparing in the ways that it, it shows that nature is frequently cruel. Uh, the show is unrelenting in its bloodshed and 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 the food chain is undiscerning. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's a very elemental tale that is surprising in its emotional depth. Um, what do you think about the, these these last five episodes of season one? Well, last year when you yeah. guys reviewed Primal, I wasn't the one who reviewed it. It was Chris. Oh, actually, because right, we right, right. On board yeah. for the October one. Yeah, so, you are down. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, um, I revisited the entirety of Primal uh, in one sitting this time around. Oh right. man, this is easily and maybe by far my favorite Gendy Tadovsky, um, work for sure. Mm-hmm. I, I think like he, it, it, this is peak. This is peak. Yeah. Uh, Gendy, and as much as I love Samurai Jack, as much as I love, um, Dexter's Lab and all of that, like the this is brilliant in so many ways. Yeah, I was just very, very just taken by the attention to detail and the, how creative and innovative like a lot of the choices that they made were mm-hmm. um, because so many of the emotions uh, that are displayed through through the, um, you know, the, the way the characters are drawn and, and the character work in that sense, um, it, it feels very universal right like yeah. we are completely projecting onto these dinosaurs you know uh, these raptors uh, these woolly mammoths like all of that uh is so it's so interesting right like how would you know what grief looks like right to mm. to a woolly mammoth like how mm. do you display that like it's entirely the work of imagination and you, you need to touch on something extremely universal for somebody to get that without dialogue you know or without an internal monologue so it's these moments that like completely blow me away. And I think the score it has to do a big, big part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh with with carrying emotion throughout everything. Uh yeah, so primal like is is probably the thing that I enjoyed most uh this this month. Um, yeah. just yeah. carrying all that. I think the relationship, even the relationship between Spear and Fang, mm-hmm. which apparently is are, are the given names uh mm-hmm. from the first episode. Uh, Spear being the the caveman and Fang being the the uh, T-Rex, the T Rex, the T Rex. Um, like to be able to watch everything at one go and just see how their the progression of their relationship is like is extremely heartwarming, right? Mm. And it's set amidst like the most ridiculous kind of like bloodshed and and fight for survival that I've seen in animation actually. Mm. Um, so yeah, all in all, I love Primal. Like it is such a great piece of work um, mm-hmm. that is very difficult to describe in words. 
Yeah. Like you re- it's really something that needs to be experienced. And it, what's most interesting is that because it is uh it doesn't have any dialogue, because it is wordless, right? It forces you to to pay attention. Mm. You know, there's no like glancing away to look at your phone. Mm. There's no, you know, kind of like half assing it while doing something else. Like it 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 commands your attention at any given point in time and for good reason as well. Just mm-hmm. because there's just so much to take in in any given frame. Mm, yes, yes. It's it's both maximalist and minimalist at the same time, if if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, Primal is, as I mentioned, the show is very savage. The show is very brutal. But the thing about the show is like the real key element of the show is 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 teamwork. How how the caveman and the T Rex survive is through teamwork. Yep. Pri- Primal repeatedly emphasizes the importance of cooperation. No one can survive alone. Is the message. It is remarkable how much. Pathos, humor, action, and suspense, uh, Tartowski has crabbed into each episode mm-hmm. without having a single word spoken. Yep. By avoiding dialogue, as you mentioned, he's challenged himself and his animators to find a way to explore emotions that words could, could complicate. It's the most primal elements of those emotions are the most elemental like the most basic of it you know absolutely he, he reaches into the ancient past to find the roots of empathy that allowed humans and other animals to survive and thrive in a hostile world you know savagery, savagery isn't enough for us uh, to endure yeah the show argues that compassion is just as primal as savagery mm. uh and primal continues to be a, a stunning achievement you know if if um I don't think Primal really has a big flaw at, at all. It's, I struggle to nitpick at something that, that I don't like about it. Like, everything about it is is so visceral and so engaging uh, that sometimes I wish that more animation would be would, would rely less on dialogue, you know? Yeah. Would, would, would rely less on the exposition yeah. and just, you know, work to show us, you know, the, through primal emotion, you know what what these characters are feeling. There are very few missteps in in primal. Absolutely, I totally agree with you. I mean, some episodes I definitely prefer more than others. Some are, are def- definitely feel tighter, right? Yeah. In terms of the yeah. way they are told, uh, and and that's completely understandable. I I think, right? Mm-hmm. Because they aren't necessarily a through line. Like there isn't like an overall plot. Um, yeah. For for us to follow, other than the fact that they want to survive. But there's very, very little to kind of even try and nitpick at, you know? Um, yeah. And, yeah, it's, it's oh, man. It, it's really, really hard to talk about Primal. Um, and and we, we're singing as much of his praises as possible, but it's really something that needs to be experienced. Yeah, definitely, man. Um, I think, um, overall, um, I would rate this a, a 9 out of 10. Yep, it's a 9 out of 10 for me. Um, at the point of recording, we still have one more episode to go. Yeah, we haven't seen the finale yet. Yep. Yeah, so I'm lo- really looking forward to that. Um, what have what have your favorite episodes been from this latest five? This latest five? Huh? Um, I really enjoyed the episode where um, uh, Spear has to protect Fang when Fang is injured. Yep. Uh, you know, you know... Uh, it, that is a beautiful episode like, where where I think Spear actually realizes how much emotional importance Fang means, how yeah. much Fang means to him, you know, emotionally. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like that, that was the episode that, that really emphasizes that they were like more than um, colleagues mm-hmm. in survival. They, they were actually like family at that point. Yeah. 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 I think the standout episode for me was the zombie one, actually. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Plague of Madness. Plague yeah. of Madness, yeah. So good. So, so good. I, I didn't expect us to go there, but we mm. they did. Uh, and like, to, to get Primal as it is, and then to throw in some zombie stuff is like amazing. It's so good. Yeah. I mean, there, there was magic and, and, and uh, fantastical monsters, you know, in the first half of season one. There's more magic here as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it, it is it is in part fantasy. Uh, of course, it is fantasy because, you know, T-Rexes don't exist with fully mammals, fully mammals and, yeah. and humans <laughs> and all that. Like, it, it's already fantasy there. Lah, but, you know, it, this is a very fantastical show, mm-hmm. despite it being, you know, really about primal emotions. Uh, yeah, I mean... Do check out um, Primal Man. It's now on HBO Max and it's also on Adult Swim. Uh, the most highly recommended show this, this month, at least. Yeah, for sure, for yeah. sure. Highly recommended. Uh, next up, I'll be moving on. Okay, I'm I'm splitting up Quick Hits into two portions uh, this month because there's just so much to talk about. Um, for but for the first Quick Hits, which is the segment where I talk about shows and movies that my co-host hasn't been able to watch, I'm gonna quickly review all the sci-fi fantasy. Uh, stuff that is available and then in the second part i will move on to horror halloween things mm-hmm. um so for this first part of quick hits the one thing that i really wanted to talk about was an indie film called save yourselves um save yourselves features a brooklyn hipster millennial couple who want to detox quote-unquote from phones wi-fi and technology by going on an off-the-grid getaway you, you know what i mean yeah okay. uh, yeah they, they just want to go to a, some cabin you know like oh like fuck our emails and all of that let's just get away from it all you know i think our generation is becoming too reliant on technology mm-hmm. unfortunately for them their time away has caused them to miss an apocalyptic alien invasion um <laughs> So when they, they go back out into the real world, you know, it's, it's all fucked. Like, aliens are everywhere. Um, uh, this, this lo-fi sci-fi comedy uh, is quite a delight. It, it lampoons the high-minded ideals of, of, um, of this current generation. Uh, my generation, to be honest, the millennial generation. Uh, you know, like, for example, like the, the guy, he makes like 3D printed algae surfboards to save the environment. You know, <laughs> and they're into, into healing crystals and shit like that. But then when it comes down to it, you know, like our generation truly is um, inept when it comes to the practicalities of survival. Like, for example, their failure to make campfire is be- blamed on bad wood uh, like <laughs> that exists. Um, it all makes for very huge laughs um, and is greatly buoyed by the comic charm and, and, and great chemistry of its two leads uh, played by Sunita Mani and John Reynolds. Um, both Mani and Reynolds uh, make the film an enjoyable look at uh, early 30-something indecision uh, even before the arrival of the aliens uh, who are so odd-looking that our protagonists assume that they are pieces of weird decor. Um, Star Trek fans will see them as tribbles. They are, they are obviously tribbles. Um, <laughs> so yeah, um, Save Yourselves really coasts along with funny gags about poor survival skills and, and actually genuinely authentic insights into 21st century romance. Yep. Uh, there's basically only one joke in Save Yourselves. You know, in this hapless generation is doomed. But the variations of the joke are so good and so damn accurate that I, I'm I'm gonna give this a seven out of ten. Wow. Okay. Okay. Uh, next up, um, over the moon is a new Netflix animation movie. It is loosely inspired by the Chinese legend of Chang Yi. Um, this uh, Netflix magical animated musical. It follows uh, a bright and determined young girl with a passion for science. Uh, soon after her mother's passing, she builds a rocket ship to the moon 
to prove the existence of a legendary moon goddess. You know, she's young enough to believe that a woman named Chang'e is actually on the moon uh, and waiting to be reunited with the archer she left behind on Earth. Mm -hmm. But she's also old enough to understand the physics required to go up there to see for herself. Um, She does this to prove to her dad that love is forever in an attempt to keep her dad from moving on and remarrying. Um, Once she is on the moon, uh, on this unexpected quest, uh, she discovers a whimsical land full of fantastical creatures. You know, first of all, the film is beautiful. The contemporary update is is uh, is um, enhanced by director Glenn Keane's richly detailed visuals and an energetic voice cast, uh, headed by Kathy Ang, uh, Philippa Su, who you might know from Hamilton and Ken Jeong. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, the film is too generic to really stand out. Yeah, this feels like Wizard of Oz and Coco and Kubo and the Two Strings and Up tossed in a blender. Um, the songs are catchy and there is sufficient charm and genuine warmth, but there have been a million animated movies tackling the same themes of grief, grief and death, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and there have been a million movies that have done it better than this one. You know, there is enough here to enjoy for the very young and the lessons are important, but for the rest of us, it just feels like the millionth and one version of, of like Coco, you know? Yep. So um, that's why I'm going to give this a 5 out of 10. There's nothing truly special about it, uh... but it is gorgeous, I do have to say. Animation is quite good. Um, next up, I'm going to be talking about Batman, Death in the Family. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a choose-your-own-adventure Batman game, and it's based <laughs> on the 1988 Death in the Family storyline in yeah. the Batman comics. If you are too young... Back in 1988, the Batman comics, they let fans decide the fate of Jason Todd, who took over the mantle of Robin in 1983. Todd had become so unpopular with fans that comics editor Dennis O'Neill decided to let readers vote on the Boy Wonder's fate by launching a 900 number to let fans decide if Todd would live or die at the hands of the Joker mm-hmm. uh, for a 50-cent fee, of course, you know, for each call. Um, fans overwhelmingly decided that Todd should be killed off and killed off in the most gruesome way. Uh, it resulted in, in the shocking, in one of the most shocking and, and batshit crazy and most influential Batman storylines of all time. Yep. Over 30 years later, the fate of Robin is once again in our hands with the release of Batman Death in the Family, the interacted uh, short film that plays out you know, like a choose-your-own-adventure story. It mixes in elements from the original Death in the Family storyline with the Under the Red Hood arc, which comes after that. Mm-hmm. So viewers are given a number of prompts throughout the film that can drastically change uh, the arc of the story, leading to very different outcomes. There are a lot of different options for both Robin and the Dark Knight and a wide array of characters, which can often lead the story to down some very fun, very unexpected paths that you would not see coming. Um, there is an absurd amount of alternate endings. I don't think I got through all of them. Yeah. Uh, and, and clever mechanics that makes it a much better quote-unquote game than Bandersnatch. Uh-huh. Um, on the flip side, as a story, it doesn't really offer much in the form of character work. Yeah. Which can be overlooked la, because the character motivations have to be binary, right? Yeah. Um, yeah so a, as a movie slash story, it's not as good as Bandersnatch. Yeah. As a game, it is way better than Bandersnatch. 
Um, in the end, your enjoyment of this depends on how much you value gamification over storytelling. Mm. Uh, I am one of those folks that prefer storytelling, so for me, this yep. is a six out of ten. Uh, but I could see easily see someone, you know, giving this a nine out of ten uh, if if they love the game aspect. Okay, uh, okay, I have a couple of questions, right? Because I yep, yep. I didn't participate in this, obviously. So, do you feel like it makes sense to do what they did, considering that they only had one choice back in the day, right? Mm-hmm. Whether or not Jason Todd lives or dies. And yep. ultimately, that decision has shaped the Batman universe since, mm-hmm. right? So, do you feel like this was simply jumping on the bandwagon, or did the choice to do this make sense? Uh, this was definitely jumping on the bandwagon. Yeah. Um, I think DC wanted to do a choose your own adventure story, and Death in the Family makes the most sense for it. Yeah, it didn't. It didn't need to be a choose your own adventure, to be honest. But the the different alternate ends, uh, you know, is is more than binary. It's like it, it, there's more than two options whether Robin lives or dies. There's yeah. a lot more, you know. Yeah, there is. You know, there's um how he becomes Red Hood, where the Red Hood exists, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes it a bit more different. Okay. Than the bin- than the binary structure, so. I do feel it's unnecessary, but at the same time, you know, all movies are unnecessary to an extent. Yeah. And I had fun with this. Okay, okay. I was just wondering, just because, like, Killing Joke didn't do very well as well. No, yeah. Yeah, so, like, I, I, I'm not sure, you know, usually DC animation stuff has, it's typically, you know, outstanding stuff, but the last two for Batman, at least, hasn't been great, so... I do agree. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, th- so this is a pretty solid, uh, a solid one. Okay. Uh, next up, I'll be talking about 2067. It is an indie sci-fi film from writer-director Seth Lani. Uh, it takes place in 2067, as the title implies. Uh, here, Earth has been ravaged by climate change, and humanity is forced to live on artificial oxygen. Uh, however, an illness caused by synthetic O2 is killing the world's population, and the only hope for a cure comes when they receive a message from the future, um, well, an even further future. Um, the message only says, send Ethan White. Ethan is an underground tunnel worker with a terminally ill wife who is suddenly thrust into this time travel scenario yeah. where he must travel into the future, which has already solved the climate crisis. Uh, so, you know, he needs to find, how, find out how they solved it um, in order to fix the present and uh-huh. find a cure for his wife. Um, visually, 2067 is stunning, uh, especially given it's very low budget. You know, it, it, it presents a steampunk future and then uh, presents a different future 400 years further down where nature has reclaimed the planet and all of it is eye-popping. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. The locations are outstanding, whether it's your standard futuristic depictions of machinery and holograms or even stumbling around a forest trying to uncover his greater purpose in this uh, Save the World narrative. Um, like a lot of movies about time travel, 2067 works best when you don't think about the story or the plot. Um, the story hits very familiar beats. It offers very few surprises. Its primary weakness is that it doesn't really bring anything new to the table. Mm-hmm. And the characters are once again just plot devices in service of its themes and time travel machinations. It is not as... The characters are not as paper thin as Dark, for example, but it's close. Okay. Um, Disappointingly, most of the big twists can be seen from like light years away. Um, <laughs> uh, but I think it's indictment of greedy corporations and the selfish destruction of the planet 
uh, those themes are perpetually timely. Um, so the beauty of it, the thematics of it, makes it a solid film overall, but not special. So I'm giving this a 5.5 out of 10. Mm. Uh, next up, I'll be talking about another indie sci-fi called Synchronic. Synchronic is set in New Orleans. Uh, it follows paramedics and longtime best friends, Steve and Dennis, as they are called to a series of bizarre and gruesome accidents. Uh, they chalk it up to a mysterious new drug found at the scene. Uh, but after Dennis's oldest daughter disappears, Steve stumbles upon the terrifying truth about the supposed uh, psychedelic drug. The drug more or less opens up the user's mind to the theory of all time. Mm-hmm. Past, present, and future exist simultaneously. So the drug uses sort of perceive time in a way that like the, 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 you know, like Dr. Manhattan does or the... the the squids in um, the octopuses in Arrival do, you know? Yep. Um, the high allows them to travel through time, but the only catch is that they, they don't get to choose where they want to go. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of the directors, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, uh, mm-hmm. who, who, who made this film. Uh, you know, look through their filmography and you'll find unique and compelling sci-fi films made on a shoestring budget. Uh, and with this, they're given a lot more money and thus the film looks a lot more slick and, and polished than their usual fare. Yep. Um, th- thankfully, the duo's signature ability to spin tension is intact. However, despite an intriguing first two acts and good chemistry between Anthony Mackie and uh, Jamie Dornan, the two leads, the film ultimately opts for a disappointingly conventional climax. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I expected something a bit more thoughtful and intellectual from these two. Uh, but in the end, I think the, the film is more of a normal Hollywood time travel flick, which is a bit disappointing. Uh-huh. Um, it's an above-average one for sure, uh, thanks to the director's penchant for trippy visual flourish. Mm-hmm. But story-wise, nothing to memorable or, or original, so it's a 5 out of 10 for me. Oh, okay. Uh, next up, we'll be talking about South Park, uh, which is, you know, still around, <laughs> if you don't know. Um, and if any show thrives on the chaos of the world, it is South Park, which mm. is why Matt Stone and Trey Parker have released the show's first ever one-hour-long episode tackling literally every fucked up thing that's happened in 2020. <laughs> it is called The Pandemic Special. Um, it talk, it, it's about, you know, it, the US government's inept handling of the coronavirus. It's also about police reform and, and, and police brutality. Um, on paper, the idea of Randy yeah. being the secret culprit behind COVID-19 sounds like a good premise. Um, and there are certainly some memorable moments along the way. You know, it's fun seeing this episode tie back to season 23's China storyline. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the constant dicks at people who refuse to wear the mask properly. Um, Randy's attempt at engineering a vaccine is classic Randy. Um, there's even a South plot about South Park's defunded police department <laughs> being, being contracted out as teachers. Um, this oddball premise winds up serving as a perfect examination for how poorly trained, overly armed police officers only make bad situations worse. Uh, but those moments notwithstanding, this whole storyline is it's kind of a meandering mess. There is too much self-aware dialogue, too many random plot twists, uh, like a secondary mustache pandemic, um, and and not much in the way of payoff in the end. So despite having more than double the runtime of a normal episode, the pandemic uh-huh. special winds up making the same mistakes as South Park's later seasons um, in that it is less than the sum of its parts. It is a haphazard mishmash of timely topics that could use a bit more, f- uh, a bit more streamlining and a bit more uh, time for the creators to really think through what are the good jokes and what are the bad jokes and what are the points that they could make. Yep. Uh, so it's, it feels really messy and reactionary, uh, which is why I'm giving this a 5 out of 10. 
yes. Yeah. Uh, next up, I'll be talking about a fantasy movie called The Place of No Words. It follows a terminal, terminally ill father who is asked by his, his three-year-old son, where do we go when we die? Mm-hmm. Heavy question. Um, in his answer, the father goes on an epic journey with the boy through fantastic lands full of mythical creatures. Uh, obviously, you know, this takes place in your imagination. Uh, it is written and directed by Mark Webber. He actually casts his own um, extremely photogenic family uh, in this movie. Uh, so it feels like a very deeply personal exploration of g- grief and mortality. Mm-hmm. Um, their imagined journey in which they are Vikings exploring a rugged Nordic landscape unfolds like a lavishly realized uh, playtime fantasy between father and son it's endearing and culminates with uh the moment the father has to tell his son that he has cancer uh, which is very sad but the film also feels like a more amateurish homemade version of where the wild things are mm-hmm. pants labyrinth or a monster calls it has the production values of a student drama film uh and its artsiness isn't nearly as beautiful or poignant as the the films i i, I mentioned you know yeah. uh, before so despite a promising central theme I found this to be a disappointment. Uh, 4 out of 10 for me. Uh, next up, finally, for the first part, I'll be talking about Love and Monsters. Uh, it is set seven years after what is called the Monster Apocalypse. It follows a character called Joe Dawson, uh, who along with the rest of humanity, mm-hmm. has been living underground ever since giant creatures took, to the, took control of the land. Uh, this is a very similar premise to the next show that we'll be talking about. So this is why I'm kind of pairing it together. <laughs> Uh, however, Love and Monsters, you know, uh, it's about this guy. Like, he's, he's living underneath, you know, the rest of humanity. Monsters are above, above ground. So um, he, co- he reconnects over the radio, you know, um, a two-way radio with his high school girlfriend, Amy, who is now 80 miles away at a coastal colony, uh, and they begin to rekindle their relationship long distance. Um, Joe realizes that there's nothing left for him underground, so he decides to venture out to the surface to find Amy, uh, despite all the dangerous monsters that stand in his way. Um, the movie... Is this is a kind of a mishmash between um, a kaiju movies and a romantic comedy, mm-hmm. um, and it delivers solid laughs, actually really really good action, and most impressively, it has really good performances. Uh, the entire cast is in top form. Dylan O'Brien and Jessica Henwick as excellent are uh, excellent as the two lovers. Michael Rooker and Ariana Greenbolt uh, might be my new favorite on-screen duo. Oh. They play uh, they play a tough as nails uh, survivors uh, that Jake encounters, and and their chemistry is gold. Um, no doubt, the most um, the most important for monster fans are that the creatures here look awesome. You know, their yeah. character their character designs are inventive and pretty damn frightening at times. Mm, mm, mm. The action sequences are good, and there are heaps of edge of uh, edge of your seat moments for you to get lost in. A very fun, very brainless popcorn movie that feels like the kaiju version of Zombieland. Uh, so I'm gonna give this a six point five out of ten. Uh, yeah. So this and Save Yourselves are maybe the only two films I would I would recommend for my first part of Quick Hits. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 Save Yourself sounds interesting. I mean, go check yeah. it out. Um, speaking of uh monsters above land and humanity <laughs> living underground, we'll be we'll next be talking about the third and final season of uh, Kipo and the Age of Wonder Beasts on Netflix. Uh, take it away, Isa. Yeah, so uh, Kipo and her friends are back for their third season and continuing from where they left off in season two. Mm-hmm. Um, Kipo, Kipo finds herself in an interesting position whereby she's rediscovered. She rediscovered, uh, you know, her mother, who is the giant monkey. Right? Yeah. Spoilers for anyone who hasn't watched season one and two, but I mean, I think the statuette for that has expired. 
Uh, you know, and right now her main, the main antagonist in, in all of this is Dr. Amelia, who has absconded by convincing all the humans and all of her human friends that, you know, mutants are bad and we need to cure them, right? So in the third season, Kipo creates um, the Human Mute Ultimate Friendship Alliance. Mm-hmm. Um, and or at least she tries to, right? And a lot of the, a lot of the season really deals with trying to convince the rest of the mutes to join her, right? Because she believes that the only way in order to progress forward in the world is to ensure that um, mutes and humans live together in coexistence. Uh, throughout the entire time, the thread of Dr. Amelia and what she's trying to do uh, is something that just continually hangs over over Kipo and her group of friends. Uh, and um, basically, that's the whole of the third season. Like, she's trying her best to push for the fact that she believes in a future where everyone can live peacefully together, whether or not, you know, everybody else is on board and whether or not, you know, um, do you stick to your principles? I think is the moral of this particular season, right? Uh, mm-hmm. There's some disagreements to whether or not Amelia, Dr. Amelia can be saved, whether there's redemption for her and Kipo decides on good faith to extend that um, goodwill to her anyways and then that mm-hmm. plays out in and of itself. So all in all, um, it's a great third season mm-hmm. and it kind of ties uh, up a lot of loose ends. I think like uh, as a series overall, as a franchise overall, Kipo has evolved into a very interesting uh, kind of uh, program. Yeah, you know, we we the world building at first was interesting. We were taken away in season one with you know the whole idea that they are just these giant animals that are walking around, and you know some of them are now are, are, are capable of speech and are fully sentient, you know, and and humans are the ones living underground into a much more complex and emotionally deep um, exploration of what it means to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, as as one and and how do you treat others you know uh, as as and how you relate to them. Mm-hmm. So uh, again, all the good stuff is back. Uh, they've got a lot of funny quips and all of that. And if Hits and I haven't already um, already said so. The music that Kipo has is maybe some of the best stuff that we've gotten out of a, a of a kid style animation in a while. Like Definitely, seriously, yeah. the beats are are crazy. It mm. also features. Uh, and I don't think this is a spoiler, but it also features an unmissable, you have to yeah. watch this, an unmissable Nawail K-pop number. Actually, several, yeah. in fact. Uh, several, and yeah. it is so good. It is so, so, so good. Uh, and it took me completely by surprise. Um, Hits, did you manage to catch all of Kipo? Yes, I did. I uh, really enjoyed Kipo Season 3. Um, if you guys aren't aware, um, you know, um, each mutant... Uh, animal, each mutated animal on land, uh, each correspond to a different subgenre of music yeah. uh, for some reason. <laughs> uh, the K-pop novels are easily the, the most delightful of all of them. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I think Kipo, um, through its three seasons, weirdly enough, all three seasons aired this year, so it's actually, you know, um, a very new show still. Yep. Um, uh, I, I, I do enjoy Kipo and Age of Wannabes, and I think it is one of the better children's animations out on Netflix. Mm-hmm. However, I do have to say that I don't think Kipo, now that it's ended, I can safely say I don't think it belongs with the top tier. Yeah. Um, I don't think it belongs with Steven Universe or Adventure Time or, or you know, um, 
stuff of that ilk, la, you know, yeah. or, or even Shira, to be honest, you know, if you're if you're gonna be Netflix specific. But it is a very enjoyable show. Yes, definitely. I, I do feel like the way in which they choose they chose to portray and resolve a lot of the conflicts, especially in season three, felt lackluster, right? Mm. Like they were difficult topics, but they're kind of brushed aside with very simple answers and simple solutions. And yeah. while I'm not saying I'm not saying that you know sometimes it doesn't deserve a simple solution, uh, mm. it just doesn't take the time or the effort to kind of like nuance all of that in the way yeah. that Steven Universe would, or even Shira would, for that matter. Yeah. You know, um, and but we do have to remember that uh, Kipo is a relatively short series right all in all like the three seasons the amount of runtime that you get the amount of screen time that there is um doesn't necessarily allow for the kind of work that steven universe has done or even shira has done for that matter mm-hmm. um yeah but it does feel uh it is a tad disappointing i did think that it had a lot of promise especially in season one yeah. um, for us to kind of come to like very kind of simple simple you know um bows on the entire series and season three Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, season three, I think, uh, for season three, I would give it a six out of ten, right? Yeah. Like it's a fun uh, watch. Same. Yeah, it's a fun same. watch. I know. Um, all that. And overall, I actually can't remember what we give we gave um the other two seasons earlier this year. They're around the, the seven range. Yeah. So I think overall, I'm gonna give it a six point five. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think that it is an entirely enjoyable. Uh, franchise. Uh, yeah. The animation is still, you know, nice and bright and colorful. The characters are funny. The music is really inventive. Not, not Rebecca Sugar, Steven Universe level, right? But mm. still, like honestly, I can I can still hear the the tree goats and the cheese traps number. You know, <laughs> it's mm-hmm, one of the mm-hmm. one of my favorites. Um, but yeah, I I think um we had a lot of high hopes for this and it didn't necessarily live up to those things just because you know we are in uh, a kind of renaissance for for amazing amazing animation uh, right yeah. now doesn't necessarily mean that everything that comes out needs to be in that league right yeah yeah i do agree um so yeah uh 6 out of 10 for me as well so now it's time for the second part of Quick Hits, Quick Hits 2, where I'm just going to be talking about um, the Halloween-themed horror that, that has been happening over the last 30 days. Um, yep. So much horror stuff uh, <laughs> is going on. Um, not all of it's good, uh, but I'm just going to delve very quickly into everything that's... Uh, all, all the horror TV shows, or the horror films that have, that have come out. Um, so first off, I would like to talk about Welcome to Blumhouse. You know? um, Blumhouse is, is one of the most exciting studios uh, in horror right now. It's brought us everything from Paranormal Activity to the new Halloween movie to Get Out. Uh, and now Blumhouse has teamed up with Amazon Prime to deliver an anthology of eight films. Um, the first four movies dropped this month because, you know, ooh, spooky season, uh, and I'll review all four. Now, of course, all four films, some reason, for some reason or another, because of a quirk of distribution deals, is available on Netflix, right? You were saying on Isa? Yeah, so a couple of them are, are, are available on Netflix at the moment. Nice. Um, yeah, so for, for those of you that want to check out um, some of the ones that are on Netflix, I can't remember which ones though. I'll have to. Right, yeah, in. so um, some of them are on Netflix, but all of them are on Amazon Prime, so uh, you can check those out there. La. So, okay. First film is called Black Box. Mm -hmm. The movie focuses on Nolan, a single father, after he loses his wife and his memory in a car accident. 
Then he undergoes an agonizing experimental treatment that causes him to question who he really is. Uh, think of Black Box as Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind as a horror movie. Mm-hmm. It's a story about memory or lack thereof. Um, the second movie is called The Lie. It follows a teenage girl who, comp- who confesses to impulsively killing her best friend. Uh, she confesses to her parents. Um, desperate, the parents attempt to cover up the horrific crime, leading them into a convoluted web of uh, lies and deception. Um, the third movie is called Evil Eye. It follows a seemingly perfect romance that turns into a nightmare when a mother becomes convinced that her daughter's boyfriend has a dark connection to her own past. Mm-hmm. Um, the, this this movie um, it, it it takes you know Indian spiritual concepts. It follows an Indian family uh, it, it it takes Indian spiritual concepts of reincarnation and karma and and breathes life into these elements into uh, what is basically a story about a meddling mother uh, anxious that her daughter is approaching thirty and still single. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a very cultural specific storyline so for black box the lie and evil eye i'm just gonna like just combine my review into all three and <laughs> just saying that these three movies are garbage <laughs> they okay. are they are they are so boring so dull each features a twist ending that is so insultingly stupid that it makes you angry that you wasted like an hour plus watching any of these three movies. They're oh, no. so fucking bad, you know. Um, I, I, I had like, I'm looking at my thing here. Right? I, have, I have long write-ups for each. I'm not going to bother because all of <laughs> them are terrible. Um, Black Box is 4.5 out of 10. Mm. Um, um, the Lie is, is 3 out of 10. Um, oh. Evil Eye is 3.5 out of 10. So all of them are not worth watching. The only one worth watching is the fourth entry called Nocturne. Um, Nocturne is set inside the halls of an elite arts academy Mm -hmm. and the main character is a timid music student who begins to outshine her more accomplished and outgoing twin sister when she discovers a mysterious notebook belonging to a recently deceased classmate. Hmm. Um, All I can say is thank God for Nocturne because this is the only movie worth watching. If the setting makes you think of Black Swan, um, you'd be exactly right. This is um, a female psychosexual supernatural thriller that is um, straight up, straight up a a ripoff of Black Swan, straight up. But hey, even a diluted ripoff of Black Swan is still better than the rest of these films. Lead actress Sydney Sweeney is is very good here. It's marvelous here, and her performance itself elevates this to a five out of ten. The only movie that gets passed. So if you really really want to watch something from Welcome to Blumhouse, watch Nocturne. This is the one. Yeah. Uh, next up, I'll be talking about The Wolf of Snow Hollow. The Wolf of Snow Hollow is uh, by writer director Jim Cummings. It's about um. Supposedly, there is a werewolf brutally killing young women in a sleepy town. Um, as ghastly as that sounds, this horror comedy treats these murders as a setup for a uniquely uncomfortable sitcom, <laughs> one, one that's less concerned with solving the case than, uh, than showcasing odd characters investigating the crimes. It is a parody of 80s creature features that turns into a breakdown of toxic masculinity mm-hmm. uh, that, that pervades law enforcement. Um, the Wolf of Snow Hollow... Um, uh, walks a tonal tightrope between um, a satire of male fragility, gruesome supernatural horror, creepy small town success, and and um, and if and if Fargo was was a the Office type sitcom, um, 
it mostly works. Uh, but the sections where its stones aren't in perfect ham- harmony are a wreck. Um, overall, I think it, it walks the tightrope well, but it, it falls down a few times. Mm. Um, if anything, though, the film is worth watching for Robert Foster's final performance before he passed away. Uh, Robert Foster is, is, you know, has, is a legend in the acting game. He's been in Jackie Brown, Mulholland Drive. Uh, most recently, most of you probably know him as, a, as the vacuum cleaner fugitive smuggler from the Breaking Bad universe. Um, he is absolutely wonderful here. So um, The Wolf of Snow Hollow gets a 6 out of 10 for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up, I'm going to be talking about Books of Blood uh, on Hulu. Um, Clive Barker's 1984 six-volume short story collection, Books of Blood, launched his career as a horror superstar. And the tales in this collection have been adapted into films numerous times. Uh, most notably, one of the short stories is Candyman. Um, now there's a new anthology horror film based on Books of Blood out of mm-hmm. Hulu, and it is flat-out terrible. Um, this film is an awkward amalgamation of the title story from Barker's collection and new new stories. They're not even adapting the old stories. Only one of them is an adaptation. The rest are new stories developed by director Brandon Barker. Mm-hmm. Um, the three stories are woven together so closely that by the end of the film, they converge to one, which makes it cohesive, but also ends up diminishing the effect of each individual tale. Yeah. Um, this is a very bland TV-level presentation that never really captures the weird horror tone of Barker's best stories. Mm-hmm. Um, the best Barker adaptations, you know, especially you know the the Hellraiser movies, you know, um, ex- embrace um, perversity and grotesqueness in the ho- in the office work. But Books of Blood is even more sanitized than a network TV anthology episode. Truly a dull watch. One out of ten. Bad, bad, bad. Um, <sighs> Next up is The Witches. It is the HBO Max remake of uh, Robert Zemeckis's uh, <laughs> The Witches, you know, which it, itself is, of course, based on uh, Road Dahl's 1983 classic uh, book, you know. Yep. Um, so it, it nails the camp of its dark fantasy predecessor, you know, the 1990 Witches, mm-hmm. but it retains none of the charms, none of the laughs, none of the scares. The biggest strike against the remake of The Witches is that the original film from 1990 is just sitting there on Netflix to be watched whenever you feel like. So why bother with this? <laughs> you know, Anne Hathaway tries her very best to make this work, but even her considerable talent is 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 beyond salvaging this. Um, yet another horrendous remake. Uh, a two out of ten for me. Next up, I'm going to be talking about Bad Hair. It is from the creator of Dear White People, Justin Simeon. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a horror comedy about literal killer hair. Um, it is set in the 80s, and this slasher follows an ambitious, aspiring VJ whose quest to fit into an image-obsessed industry turns deadly when a new weave develops a mind of its own. Um, <laughs> and... It is as much a horror movie as it is an examination of a black workplace. On a superficial note, I love the costume and production design of this. Um, They are evocative, immersive, and spot on. Just as impressive is Simeon's steady handle on his horror comic tone, which is at once sly, resonant, and frightening. Um, Unfortunately, though, despite its disparate great elements, while entertaining and thematically sharp, um, Mm -hmm. it doesn't quite cohere into a great movie. Um, Something about it just doesn't quite gel, and I think the main issue is pacing. It's a bit too overlong. Mm -hmm. Um, Nevertheless, Bad Hair has plenty to say about the plight of black women in particular, blackness in popular culture, and racist beauty standards, and it does it all with a fun, propulsive but 
unevenly edited film. So this is a 6 out of 10. It could have been so much better if it's just edited properly. Um, next up, and yet another horror anthology called Monsterland. Um, episodic genre anthology shows are all the rage and Huli introduces the latest one called Monsterland. Mm-hmm. It's based on the novel uh, North American Lake Monsters, uh, stories by Nathan Bellingroot. Um, this eight-episode series attempts to integrate modern social commentary with its supernatural stories, although it takes a more understated approach. Um, it's mainly about desperate people living miserable lives, with supernatural elements adding an extra itch to what's already a pretty unpleasant existence. Um, while using shapeshifters and mermaids as allegorical tools for a drudgery of modern life is an interesting idea, the major fault of this show is that the twists are predictable and the episodes end abruptly with little resolution. Most egregiously, episodes are painfully slow. Yep. The pacing is grueling, requiring a lot of patience in exchange for minimal payoff or no payoff at all. <sighs> Highly not recommended. A zero out of ten. None of these episodes are, are, are worth watching. Uh, next up is Vampires vs. The Bronx. It is a new horror comedy from Netflix that feels like a cross between Lost Boys and Attack the Block. It is directed by Oz Rodriguez. Uh, the movie plays of the concept of gentrification by pitting a crew of Bronx kids against an extremely white nest of vampires who have settled mm. in their neighborhood. Yeah. The vampires have been steadily buying up property. Uh, around the area, turning small black and Latin and Latinx-owned businesses into condos, yoga studios, you know, and chichi cafes, that sort of thing. <clears throat> and and they're not only metaphorically sucking up the lifeblood of the hood; they are doing it literally as well. Um, primarily because nobody cares if uh, poor black or brown people go missing. Um, it is a clever premise with relevant themes. Uh, but I just wish this film was better made. Um. I get that it's going for old school camp, but yep. it all feels very amateurish. It's supposed to be fun and funny, but genuine frills and laughs are scarce because the writing is weak. Um, this is a, an amusing three-minute sketch comedy idea stretched out into a 90-minute film, and it shows. Um, yeah. It left me really disappointed, so it's a 4 out of 10. Okay. Perhaps the worst of all of this... <laughs> oh my God. Perhaps the worst of all of this is Marvel Television's last show before the division uh, shut down. As you know, Marvel Television, run by Jeff Loeb, you know, um, has been shut down, and all Marvel TV shows will now be folded under Marvel Studios, which is run by Kevin Feige. Mm-hmm. The final show in production, which they finished a year ago, has just held off its release. Uh, it's called Hellstrom. It is the last live-action Marvel TV series uh, from. Jeff Loeb's Marvel uh, Television Studios. Uh, it is based on a Marvel comic character of Damien Hellstrom, um, and is very horror-influenced, hence its uh, October release date. Mm-hmm. Um, Hellstrom seems to have been completed largely out of contractual obligation, and one wonders why they bothered with this. You know, Hellstrom is a generic, dull, supernatural drama that has ties to other Marvel TV shows like Cloak & Dagger, Agent Carter, and Runaways, but it's not enough for even the most hardcore canon completers to sustain interest. Story-wise, Hellstrom refers here to not only Damon, but to his sister Anna and their mother Victoria and their unnamed father, who is initially labelled a serial killer, but is soon revealed to be something more otherworldly than that. In the comics, Damon and Anna are the children of the devil, or at least um, the children of one of the many rulers la, of, of, of Hell. Yeah. Um, here, their father seems to be a demon of some sort who spent their childhood capturing and murdering innocent people often forcing Anna to witness or participate. Um, decent enough horror premise, just very blandly executed. Uh, one of the worst um, superhero um, or, or, or comic 
adaptations there has ever been. You know, it is right up there with uh with Halle Berry's Catwoman, with uh, Jennifer Garner's Elektra, with uh with uh, Jerry Brockheimer's uh, the Batman and Robin. Um, is that bad? Mm-hmm. It's terrible. It is like a minus one or some. I, okay, like it's a zero <laughs> la, This mi- minus one doesn't exist. But this is a zero. Do not watch this. Oh, uh, and yeah, that wraps it up for all of our Halloween stuff. Although there was a lot, I got through it really quick, right? Because they all sucked. That's a horror show in and of itself. Yeah. Right. Oh my goodness. That that is incredibly disappointing. Okay, so two at least two of our main topics were good horror shows this month, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, well, semi-related to Halloween uh-huh. is the latest season of Carmen San Diego, which mm-hmm. is released in October because it has a particular emphasis on masks. Uh, the theme of Carmen San Diego season three. Yep. And its five episodes is hidden identities. Uh, what do you think about the latest season of Carmen San Diego? Oh, uh, I I fairly enjoyed it, uh, but I do feel like it's not uh, enough. Um... Not enough of the season to actually kind of tell uh, where this is going. I think that season one was kind of very clear with the world building and kind of setting the stage uh, for who Carmen is. Season two, you dig a bit more of a backstory about mm-hmm. you know her parents and her origin and all the relationships that that uh, she had while she was involved, right? And how she became who she is. I think yeah. in season three, as interesting as the whole mask thing is, right? Because almost all the episodes involve masks in one form or another. We mm-hmm. even see Carmen step out of her usual uh, red color palette to wear some interesting costumes as she goes on all the different capers. Um, mm-hmm. Throughout, it doesn't really quite have a very solid uh, through line, you know? Or at least thematically, it's nothing has been really as established yet. I'm mm-hmm. guessing they will continue to kind of... Um, try and solidify what Carmen's identity is uh, amidst everything that's going on. Um, she's looking for clues about her mother and about her past and, and where, you know, um, uh, the information that she has about her father fits into all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the same time, she has lost the, the very loose alliance that she had with Acme in, in season mm-hmm. two. You know, so I, uh, Carmen seems to be getting increasingly isolated from the greater kind of... Um, machinations of, of what's going on right with both law enforcement and with the with vile and and everything that they're doing yep. um and i do think it is working towards the whole idea of where she becomes like she really becomes carmen san diego that we kind of un- understand her to be right mm-hmm. uh as, as a kind of you know modern day robin hood um yeah. so i think it's slowly getting there um definitely there's a lot been a lot more flexibility in terms of you know how she's portrayed and uh, some very interesting thoughts about, you know, about family, whether or not family is something you're born into, you know, something that you choose, um, and quite a number of themes about that. Um, but yeah, still, uh, it's a good five episodes. Um, again, as always, extremely informative about any locale that they visit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find myself continually learning about, uh, in particular for these five episodes, about the the kind of traditions surrounding, um, you know, the Day of the Dead, for example, um, you know, things about Argentina as well, things about Venice and so on and so forth. Um, interesting tidbits about the crown jewels, for example, uh, as well. Like, mm. all of it is fascinating in, in the way that it is explained and kind of framed. And it continues to be a very interesting watch, regardless of um, what's actually going on in the meta story at the moment, just, just for the amount of 
um, trivia and information that it feeds you. Uh, and in that way, I think Count San Diego, this animated series, uh, continues to be a very strong kind of spiritual successor from the games that it was spawned from, mm. um, which I adored as a child and, and played constantly just because like, you know, it enriched, it enriched my understanding of the world. You yeah. know, uh, through this very interesting kind of uh, sleuthing game. Mm. So, uh, it San Diego season three, fast far, still very good. I'm not really sure where they're going with it. I again, much like Kipo, I think that it is a very good um, animation and very good for kids as well. I think uh, my nephew has been keeping up with it, and um, he's just learning a ton of stuff and his ton of questions about everything that goes on. Mm. Um, about the traditions and about the the landscapes and all of that and different cities and countries that they visit, so it's very educational in that way. But I don't think it will ever hit, at least at this point um, in time, it will ever hit kind of like the big leagues of animation that we are looking at right now. Mm-hmm. So first five episodes of season three, I'm going to give it a six out of ten. Uh, entirely enjoyable, extremely informative and educational. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it has it hasn't really gone anywhere yet. Yeah, um, I'm giving it seven because I sort of viewed it as a, as a sort of like a standalone OVA type of mini movie, ah. you know, like a two hour movie that is you know maybe not quite connected to the main story, but more of a Halloween kind kind of OVA ah. um, I I don't think like um, English animation has the language to set aside you know standalone stories like this yep. that really don't have you know um, a place within the larger canon, but are fun regardless. Yeah, yeah. You know? So yeah, like if you are an enemy fan, think of this as an OVA. Like, and if you think of it that way, I think you enjoy it a bit more. Yeah. Um, I do think that Carmen San Diego, I do prefer it to Kipo if I were to recommend it to children. Oh yeah. Um, sure. I think it's more consistently entertaining and, and number one, it's more uh, educational also like, mm-hmm. for kids. So yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean like, okay. So what I feel is kind of interesting is the fact that we've reached a point in time whereby Carmen has been on top of a game for, for two seasons now and she's reaching the point where um, the villains that she's faced off with and kind of bested uh, mm. are, are done with, right? Mm. And there, there isn't anyone who is particularly, uh, who is good enough to continually come back as kind of an arch nemesis yet. Mm-hmm. You know, so the inclusion of all these new characters that are coming on board as just like these random third-rate henchmen with mm. weird-ass names, like the troll, for example, was kind of like, they're, they're the new graduates, right? Yeah, yeah they're the new graduates and they've been groomed specifically to hunt down Carmen mm. San Diego. So, um, that that was kind of an interesting way to kind of go about it, you know? But I do think that if they want to kind of grow the story from there, uh, they're going to have to kind of buckle down on on a, on a like Arch Nemesis, right? As yeah. with all kind of good good anti-hero stories such as this oh. Definitely agree, man. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I mean, I'm eager to see where Carmen Senego follows up from here. It hasn't really let me down. Yeah. Uh, very consistent show. Mm-hmm. Uh, finally, for this episode of Genre Equality, we'll be going to the poll list. The poll list is where I talk about uh, various uh, books, comics, graphic novels, mangas, manhwas uh, that have come out, that that, uh, that have caught my eye or, you know, my co-host's eye. Uh, this is where we, we recommend literature, you know. Uh, don't just watch things, you can read things too. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this particular month, I would like to talk about, since it is Halloween, I would like to b- talk about a book that I read this year called Mexican Gothic. It is uh, by an author called Silvia Moreno-Garcia. It is a feminist horror novel inspired by gothic classics like Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights, but 
it's also a nod to old school macabre fairy tales, you know, like the ones where Cinderella's um, sisters chop off their feet yeah. and Sleeping Beauty's, uh, Sleeping Beauty's stepmother dies in a barrel of snakes, you know, that, those kinds of dark fairy, fairy tales. Uh. Um, and it's also rooted in the ancient mythology of Mexico, uh, where the author was born. Um, Mexican Gothic follows a 22-year-old uh, lady by the name of Noemi uh, Taboada, mm-hmm. uh, a rich, flirty party girl living in Mexico City in 1950. Um, but there's more to Naomi than um, her expensive clothes and pension for um, fancy cigarettes. Um, she wants to attend college and pursue a degree in anthropology. Um, that in itself is a horror story for her affluent parents who want her, who want her to focus on finding a husband. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Noemi's father promises that she can continue her education if she first checks in on her cousin Catalina, who lives with her husband uh, Virgil uh, in his family's uh, ancestral home in the countryside. So she goes to check on her cousin. Um, Catalina has written a letter in which she claims that her husband is slowly poisoning her uh, at, at, at their home, you know, yeah. uh, which uh, is quote unquote is uh, sick with rot, stings of decay, brims with every single evil and cruel sentiment. It's an old house atop a hill with mist and moonlight, like an etching in a gothic novel. Um, the place is called High Place. Uh, it is an ominous presence, and Moreno Garcia, the author, uses its grim atmosphere to great effect. It's a gloomy wreck filled with dusty antiques and oddly robotic servants, you know. There is a snake motif that garnishes fireplaces uh, and rugs and furniture. Mold and fungus grow on everything. Um, and, and Noemi discovers that Catalina is sleepy and confused, you know. She's, she keeps saying, there are people in the walls, you know, Catalina says. Mm-hmm. There are people and there are voices. I see them sometimes. The people in the walls. Um, and they're dead. Uh, soon, Naomi begins having nightmares and starts sleepwalking herself. And the descriptions of her hallucinations are hypnotically poetic. Uh, Virgil and his creep fest of a family are equally disturbing. So Noemi wants to escape with Catalina, but the house and its inhabitants have them spellbound. Um, Mexican Gothic drips with a miasma of dread for these captive women, especially after we learn what this strange family has in store for them. Mm-hmm. But this is a novel about powerful women as well, not victimized women. Um, not just the headstrong Naomi, but also surprisingly Catalina and, and Ruth, who is a dishonored ancestor whose own power may prove invaluable to them uh, for their survival. Uh, Mexican Gothic is such a gripping page turner, uh, and the true identity, uh, and, and well, I won't say identity because that that reveals a part of a mystery. But, you know, the the end of the mystery is, yep. is really, really satisfying. Uh, and the fate of this woman is an intoxicating uh, tale, an intoxicating mystery that makes the book impossible to put down. Um, I read this in, in one sitting over four hours, didn't get up to go pee, didn't get up to, uh, like, make a drink or anything. Damn. Just, you know, cover to cover, finished it. Next thing I knew, it's like, oh, shit, that's it. Uh, I haven't consumed a book like this in a long time. One of my favorite novels, not just genre of the year, uh, Mexican Gothic, great Halloween reading. I'll give it 9.5 out of 10. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. I might need to borrow that copy from you. Sweet. Yeah, definitely. And, and it's, uh, if, if you want, you know, you can all buy it on Amazon. You can buy it on Kinokunia. I uh, I actually borrowed it from, from a library, so I can't lend it to you. But oh, you know, right. It's, so it's, I can get it from the library. You can get it from NLB as well. Yeah. 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 Sweet. Um, 
it, this actually came out earlier this year, around March or April. Uh, obviously, it takes a few months for it to come into the library, so I waited for NLB to pick it up, and then mm-hmm. you know I could get it for free. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, support your local libraries. They're important too. Yep, yep, definitely. Yeah, um, I went to the library, right? And I realized that I hadn't like borrowed a book. I had been buying books all this time. You know? I hadn't borrowed a book in 17 years. Really? Yeah, so I was very shocked. I had no idea what the new procedures were. I had to ask. I had to ask the clerk for help and everything. So I had to get a, a new card and etc. etc. Et oh, you need so, a new card. Well, the the you you can get a new card if you know if you want a card lah. But right. you can actually just use your IC. But my right. IC is is not registered un, under the new system. I see. I see. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I've I've borrowed most of most most of my life growing up. I've borrowed like tons and tons of books. I would max out the limit every time I had a chance, especially when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, and until I had enough money to start buying books, mm. and then now that I've started buying books, I have a pile of books that I've said I've always going to read, but I haven't actually done so. Mm. Yeah, but <laughs> local libraries are great, guys. Please, uh, you know, they are the analog equivalent of uh, streaming on Netflix. Definitely. Um, support your local libraries and support your local bookstores. You know, maybe yep. maybe buy this book at at a, a local brick and mortar store. They really do need your help, especially because COVID nineteen has really you know cut down uh their earnings this year. Um, yep. A lot of local bookstores all around the world, small mom and pop shops, are going bankrupt. So if you can, you know, try to buy your books not from major retailers, mm-hmm. but from from your your small little bookshops here and there. They yeah. really need your help. Yeah. yeah. God knows, Bezos doesn't need any more money. Definitely, you know. But, you know, of course, like, if you're too scared to go out, you know, there's always, like, Amazon, they can deliver to your house. But I, I actually think a lot of uh, bookstores have delivery systems as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um. Anyways, uh, let's talk a little bit about what we're going to be covering next month. Mm-hmm. Um. It's actually going to be a big one because I wasn't expecting this to come out. Uh, but the Demon Slayer movie, Mugen Train, yeah. um, aka Infinity Train, not to be confused with the other cartoon, Infinity Train, uh, <laughs> will be coming out uh, in Singapore cinemas at least uh, on November the 19th, I believe. Yep. It is an NC-16 movie um, and we are going to go check that out. We can't wait yes, to see the new yes. Demon Slayer. The 2020 reboots of Animaniacs also debuts on Hulu. Uh, Animaniacs, one of the best cartoons of all time, you know. Um, Fantastic. I was way too... A lot of the jokes went over my head. It was way too adult. Animaniacs, to be honest, right, to me, is the precursor to Bojack Horseman with the, with the kind of deconstruction of Hollywood yeah. uh, that, that goes on with Animaniacs, just in a very more short-form sketch comedy kind of thing. Uh-huh. Very good. Um, Possessor is a movie I'm really looking forward to. It is by David Cronenberg's son, Brandon Cronenberg. Huh. And from what, I, from what I hear, his son has outdone him in terms of body horror. Um, really? everyone's saying okay. everyone's saying this is the most like disturbing uh film of the year uh, at least in terms of just gross body horror yeah and I can't wait to see whether like Brandon lives up to his uh dad's uh, very very high standards mm, interesting yeah interesting yeah uh those will be our big topics I will be talking a little bit about supernatural which ends its season 15 run next month also Woo! I can't be honest I've not watched the last 10 seasons but I will <laughs> But I will be talking about what supernatural means to me, like, and and why I think uh, it has such a li- uh, long shelf life. Yeah. Um, th- to be clear, I have seen some episodes of Supernatural over the last uh, few seasons. Like, if they have a musical or they have like special gaming episodes, like the crossover of Scooby Doo, things like that. Yeah. So I've seen bits and pieces here and there, like, and it's still really good. So uh, I like to talk about it. ISIS Anime Corner returns. Yeah, I'm gonna be talking uh, about a lot of returning titles uh, that have mm-hmm. been very very hype and a couple of like. Really, really good, really interesting um, uh, new originals that are coming out that I'm 
absolutely enjoying right now. So we'll get to that next month. Definitely, you know. A um, couple more titles I'd like to shout out. Uh, Blood of Zeus. Uh, it's actually out on Netflix right now. It, mm. is, uh, it is a Castlevania-type anime-style story about Greek mythology. Yep. Um, it looks incredible. I'm going to go watch that. Nicolas Cage's movie, Jiu-Jitsu. <laughs> where he plays um, a jiu-jitsu master who has to fight alien invaders. Uh, it's also coming out next month. Yeah. Probably not going to be high art, but I will guarantee that it's entertain- entertaining at the very least. Yep. Um, yeah, a remake, the remake of The Craft is coming out. Um, there is a weird Chinese movie uh, featuring Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jackie Chan called The Iron Mask. Um, huh. I'm going to go check that out as well. Um, they play... Boy, I have no idea. I think Arnold Schwarzenegger plays an Englishman for some reason. What? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Okay, sure, sure. We'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. Yeah. We'll figure it out. Yeah. And, and one thing I do really want to recommend, um, if, you, if you are out and about in cinemas, go watch Freaky as well, which I'm going to be talking about next month. Freaky is a weird, um, it's a horror take on Freaky Friday, where uh, a, a teenage girl, like a very like valley girl, mean girl kind, kind of teenage girl, sw- yep. sw- sw- swaps bodies with a serial killer. Wow. Yeah, so the serial killer is struggling inside, you know, the, this, co- this the high school girl's body and, and the girl is being hunted by the authorities. It's an interesting take on Freaky Friday. Interesting. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I mean, that wraps it up for this month's uh, genre equality. Anything you'd like to say before we cap off? Uh, no, I think uh, it's been it's been interesting Spooktober. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had some good stuff and some bad stuff. And uh, I, I do think overall, um, horror is on the rise. Yeah, you know, hopefully. I mean, I hope I'm hoping Blumhouse continues to put out good stuff and not not the nonsense that we've seen. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I do think that they put out the nonsense. They just like throw it out on on streaming. You know, like it's not really important to them. The yeah. good stuff will be out in cinemas, lah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and tune in. Uh, next week in a couple of days we'll be recording. Well, next week lah, we'll be recording a uh, a new episode of Behold where we talk about the US elections, specifically mm. pop cultural depictions yep. of American politicians and their political process. We'll be delving into the West Wing, Veep and Boy State in particular. Yep. Uh, so tune in for that. Uh, that episode will be out on the first week of November in conjunction with the US elections, of course. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, till next time, this has been Hit Zero. This is Isa. Goodbye, guys. Ciao.